All right, John. <laughs> well, welcome to the John Torelli podcast, the classic bodybuilding podcast with probably one of my favorite ever bodybuilders, Phil Williams. Now, this man um, has kept a low profile over the years from what I can see. Nonetheless, he's an incredible bodybuilder of um, world standard. And today I want to introduce him to people that have obviously never heard of them, of him or may have heard of him. Um, Phil, thank you for coming on today. I, I know you just finished the podcast um, and now you're just starting another one. I wanted to start with you introducing yourself to us. Um, I know that you lived in Sweden for the longest time. You now live in the USA, and I'm not sure of your background, but I did hear that you were Egyptian, if, if I'm right. correct. I'll tell you the crazy story, yeah. Yeah, I want to I hear all these stories, Phil. Well, I'll start from the very beginning. I think that'll be easier than move forward. Uh, I was born in Egypt. Uh, my father, my parents, my father in particular worked for the government, and he brought me over when I was about four months old with my mom, my biological parents. And something, the story is that something happened to my mom. She fell ill and passed away. And so my father wasn't going to raise me being a diplomat from Egypt. So I was put up for an adopt, put up for adoption rather. And I was adopted at about seven or eight months old. And, uh, Grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, the funny story, my biological parents, I, I, I've never seen photos of them. Don't know too much about them other than what was told to my adopted parents. And my adopted mother, uh, she escaped. She was born in France. And in she was born in 1921. And in 1939, when Hitler invaded France, she was the only member of her family to escape. And she made her way to the U.S. And my uh, adopted father was a former professional boxer. Okay. And he uh, fought on the same card with Sugar Ray Robinson back in the 30s and 40s. And so I was adopted in 1960. And so... They were older parents. My, my mother was 42 and my father was 54 when they adopted me. And, and I grew how, up, how old were you? What year were you born? I was born in June 3rd, 1960. Saturday's my birthday. Today's the oh, first. Okay. I'll be 63. Right. Okay. Yeah. How time so, flies. Uh, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, in the Midwest. And of course, uh, is another thing I, I, I talk about this I, I used to be embarrassed about it when I was a kid or even as an adult but I have autism okay it's functional autism so I mean as a kid I was always my mom would say I was peculiar and <laughs> of course the type of autism I had I, I don't like people I was afraid of people I like to be alone uh, I don't talk a lot. I never really go up and introduce myself to people. And I like individuals, but I don't like crowds or groups of people. I've always kind of shied away from that naturally. And I have a habit of rocking, which I've never been able to get rid of. 
<laughs> I still rock to this day. And especially when I'm focusing on anything in particular. So when I train between sets, you can see me rocking. I even do it at home. My wife's gotten used to it. She, she kind of figured out what it was and knew I had autism because she was familiar with it because she worked with kids. Well, look, so, that, is, that is very interesting because I, you know, all I know is we've got a lot of familiarities. Um, as soon as I met you, we got on really well. Yeah, um, I'm just I'm just surprised at the, at the level that you reached and um, the low profile that you kept, which um, what you've just explained now explains why. Yeah, that's I'm, that's the reason. I've I've never been diagnosed with uh, autism or anything like that, but I I do know that a, your personality and a lot of the things that you do really resonate with me, and that's one of the reasons why. Um, I like you or love you so much. Um, Thank you. Thank you, buddy. You know, I've always admired your physique. I know you've got a magazine there that we're going to have a look at in a a minute. Um, So basically you've told us your family background and a lot of personal stuff, which I really appreciate. Phil, are you currently working as a personal trainer or what sort of business are you in? Well, I'll tell you right now, I work at a GNC. It's a general nutrition center. And a friend of mine got me a job there. I was doing personal training for a while. But uh, the guys that I had, they wanted to train. These these kids are different today. These guys are different. Uh, The guys I trained, I trained them three days a week. It was basically using a high-intensity training system, pretty similar to what Mincer did. We'd give them plenty of time for recovery. So let's say if I trained a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, whatever, kind of using a push-pull system, and I would take notes so they could see, they could look back at the notes that I took, and they could see how much they were advancing and progressing, yes. right? Yes. It was too hard. In time, they faded away. They made progress. You could see the progress, increase in strength. Increase in, you know, intensity, but it was too much. And so it, it was too much for them or too much for them? It was them? too much for them. Okay. The intensity became at the level where it was too great. Okay, I see. I see. And, you know what I'm saying? And they just didn't have it here. Yep. Yep. They, they didn't have the mindset of a champion. No. And, and, that is, I was, and they want, according to what they told me when they started, this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to pursue bodybuilding. So I said, okay, I'm going to set you up on a person, uh, you know, a one-on-one with me training program, a high intensity program. This is how it's going to work. And one guy lasted about four months and the other lasted uh, probably about three and a half. And Phil, this is why I say you can have all the genetics and, you know, people that don't have genetics that don't go far say, oh, well, these guys wouldn't know because they've got genetics. But it's it's much more than genetics. You know, right. what you've just described is is real. And, you know, if you don't if you don't have it here. If you don't have the heart. Genetics exactly. never won anything for anyone. No, no, I agree with that. You know, um, and this is this is this is a perfect example of everything I've ever discussed about people and why they don't make it. Um, you know, maybe it's their environment or f- for me, if I was at that age and I had somebody like you, wow, 
I, I would have done practically anything to continue. And they knew your background. When they came for you, yeah. they, knew who, they knew what they were dealing they with and what they asked you. They probably couldn't ask too many people better than you. Um, so anyway, it's, that's their loss. Phil, what I did want to ask you is who inspired you in the beginning? Who, who was the person that when you had a look at him, he may have been your idol or somehow he prompted you or, you know, um, who, who was it? And, you know, tell us a little bit about that. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Uh, I'll lead up to it. I was bullied from the time I was six years old okay. until I was like 15 on a daily basis, right? Yeah. And because I was a peculiar child, of course, I mean, you know, I was teased because I was adopted. I was teased because I looked funny to them, uh, not being black, not being white. Yep. So that was in the 60s growing up, that was a little different thing. You got bullied, especially from the blacks, more than anyone else. I kid you not, because they, you know, make fun of me. Sorry and, to uh, that, but I... <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's what led, eventually led me into bodybuilding. In 72, I got into martial arts. I saw Bruce Lee and I thought, well, he's got muscles. Nobody would mess with him. And so I started taking martial arts, of course. And my father, being a pro boxer, taught me how to box as a kid. Yeah. But you couldn't box three or four kids. Yeah. Yeah. And it was always three or four against one. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, look, um, I, I kind of experienced a little bit of that myself. Uh, so I know where you're coming from because I was ethnic. And, you know, when I got to Australia, I was I was overweight, strange looking. Um, right. Completely different to everyone else. And I got bullied something bad. I'm not sure that that's the reason why I started, but obviously that's what led you into this. That's, that's uh, why I discovered bodybuilding. Sorry? That's how I discovered bodybuilding. Yes. Because in, I started in 75. I started training in 1975. There were no gyms anywhere. The health and fitness industry didn't exist. I started in a downtown YMCA, right? And I'll tell you how I started. A kid I went to school with, we had a show and tell, and the kid brought pictures of his father, who was a bodybuilder, one of the best in the Midwest. And he showed me the pictures. And I said, please introduce me to your dad. I want to meet him. It's the first time I ever saw a bodybuilder. And his father came to pick him up from school once, and he introduced me to his father. And I met the man, and I looked at him, and I said, oh, I want to be like you. What do I do to be like you? And the guy kind of laughed at me and you know, kind of shrugged me off. I bugged that man for six months until he finally gave in and took me to the downtown YMCA with him. And what was his name? David Washington. David Washington. Yeah, he was one. He competed against Boyer Cole in the Junior America and Harold Poole back okay. in the 60s. Right. See, these are and all these unsung heroes that you never even hear about. No. You, you know, no longer hear about. He was, probably, he was probably of a great standard, and to have. Uh, got your attention the way he did. Yeah. Um, and nobody's ever heard of him, which is incredible. Yeah. yeah. So at 15, I finally met him at the YMCA, told me what to do, took me to some workouts. I'd meet him down there on a Saturday. And from there I started. It was two years later, I was competing in my first show, the Mr. Missouri Valley, which was a novice show. I took 16th out of 13th out of 26. 
look, uh, you competed against Lee Haney. How long right. after that? Because okay. it, from what I was told, there was a contest that both of you entered. You yeah. beat him. Then he went away and got so good that after yeah. that, nobody was able to keep up with him. Yeah, um, I'll tell you, that was uh, 1979. It was at the Teenage Mr. Coaster USA in Atlanta, Georgia. So I took the bus there, Greyhound bus, to the contest because I didn't want to drive because I was too tired. I was 18 at the time. And I met Lee and Shirley at the show. She was with him, his wife. And I looked at him and I said, boy, he's huge, you know. And for some reason, I can't say it's politics because none of us were known at the time. We were teenagers coming from different areas. He came from South Carolina. I came from Kansas City. And I ended up winning that show. And in that competition, he took fourth. So maybe he wasn't in the greatest shape. I don't actually remember the details of the show. Okay, this is in May of 1979. Let's go June, July, August, September. Teenage Mr. America in Detroit, Michigan. I land in fifth in the medium class, medium height class in that show. And he wins the tall and then he won the overall. Okay. Just four that, months later. And you must have seen a lot of improvement, perhaps, that he that he made in that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I did. You know, I've paid more attention to him at the Teenage Mr. America because I had beaten him at the Teenage Coastal USA, so I really had a good chance to see him. And it, we were in the same class. We were different height classes. I'm in the medium, he was in the tall. So I got a chance to see him. And, yeah, I was amazed at how much he improved over a short amount of time. Just four months. Now, I think it was last week or the week before I was on the Most Muscular podcast with you, and it was probably Jean-Pierre Fuchs who said, who explained part of Lee Haney's personality where he didn't have this personality where he was focused on winning. He more or less just did the best that he could, and he showed up, and he always won. But I think there was more to it than that because I heard somewhere that Lee knew um, and he was actually, he had an operation on his wrist. He had something done and he was, was in a sling. And he was talking to his friends and he, he, he knew his numbers and the science behind it. And he said, look, if I get to this weight looking a particular way, there is just simply not going to be anybody around who's going to be able to challenge me or something to those words. So there was more to it than just a nice guy training and showing up at shows and winning them. Right. I think he was quite measured and quite smart. And he yeah. knew, look, he's a student of bodybuilding. He knows what he's talking about. It's his game. Um, so as much as he had the incredible attitude and, you know, um, that Jean-Pierre Fuchs described, He's also a smart guy that actually was was very yeah. measured and in everything to do with this industry. Um, I, I'd say I'd say so, Phil. And he inspired a lot of us. He got all of us to to reach the next level. And I think you know also a lot of people Absolutely. gave up once they saw him. Um, now, yeah. back to you, Phil. I. I I I wanted to talk to you about training, but there's been more about your competitions that, you know, at one stage uh, you competed against Joseph Gromulus. Right. And he did end up beating you. I I don't know what happened there or what you felt 
should have I, happened, I, but you, you won the I'll, nationals I'll, and then you went to the world championships, which those days you had to do in order to activate your pro card. You had to have a I, world amateur title at least to get a pro card. <clears throat> do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because, you know, we weren't there. We don't know what happened. And it was obviously an interesting situation. I'm going to work up to that. In 80, 1983, I was living in Sweden. And there was the Open European Championships a week before the Mr. Europe, the IFBB Mr. Europe. And so I went into that show, and I won the overall. Okay. The guy that won the heavy eight was a guy named Christer Erickson. I don't know if you remember him. I, I, he was on the cover I, of I, I, I Magazine. I remember him, yes. He won the Mr. Europe a week later, but I beat him in the Open Mr. Europe. So I figured at that point, I'm ready to go back to the U.S. If I can beat the best in Europe, then perhaps I'm ready to go back to the U.S. and join the NPC. I come back in 84. There's the Amateur Grand Prix a week before the NPC USA Championships in 84, which was in San Jose. So I qualify by winning the Amateur Grand Prix. A week later, I go to the 84 NPC USA, which wasn't a pro qualifier at the time. It became that two years later. Right. I won the light heavyweight in the overall in the USA Championships. So after that, I trained for the national championships, which is a year and a few months later, which was held in, I believe, September in Miami, Florida, 1985, September 13th or 14th. I go into that show. I win the NPC uh National Championships, the light heavyweight class, and the overall in that show. So there's actually another pro card, but that wasn't available until a year later. Three weeks later, I go over to Sweden, which I lived there part-time between the U.S. and in Sweden. And I run into, I knew who Gromulus was because he had beaten – he was beaten by Gaspari in 84. Yes. yes. They had the world championships. Yes. That year. And I think that was in Vegas. So what I had heard that in 84, Gaspari was behind on points going into the pose down. And during the pose down, which wasn't supposed to be judged, this is what I was told. I don't know if this is 100% accurate. Gaspari beat Gromulus and he should have won that year. Okay. That's, that, was the, that was the word. As we went to Europe for the World Championships three weeks after the Nationals, a funny thing happened. I had a, two friends. The competition was in Gothenburg, Sweden, my hometown. So imagine having the World Championships in your hometown, right? I knew three of the Swedish test judges that were friends of mine. And after prejudging, they said that they deliberately placed you very low so in the nighttime, you'd never be able to catch up. And he said, they said, Gromus is going to win. And they, they told me this after prejudging. Okay. They said, there's nothing you can do to catch up. So I knew going into the night show that I'd already lost. Wow. So okay. Well, that, um, meant, that meant no pro card. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so for three years, I was in sort of limbo. I that continued to train. I wouldn't call it a depression, but it, it, it was there was something there. 
And they said, well, all you have to do is write, I guess it was Jim Mannion or Wayne D'Amelia a letter, right? And ask for a pro card. Well, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to earn the pro card, yes, but there's, yes. no, there's no show to go to to earn that card. So I didn't write the letter until 87. Okay. That's unbelievable, honestly. So you just wasted three years waiting in limbo. For the most part, yeah. You know, do you ever look back and regret that you, those three I years, do. you're never going to get them back? I do. I, I, I do now, yeah. Yeah. At the time, you know, I was unhappy about it. And it was hard for me to do. Again, I don't, it, I don't know if that has to do with the autism and the way I am, but I, I, I don't know. I, I just couldn't do it. It took me a long time to do it. And I just quiet, I stayed to myself. I, I sort of vanished. I disappeared. Yeah, um, to the point where that's why I'm talking about you, you kind of kept this low profile. Yeah. Look, so you made up for it as far as I'm concerned. There was that pro show in Chicago. You got Gary Stridham in very good shape. Yeah. Now, when you're looking at a physique like Gary Stridham, standing relaxed – and any pose where you're keeping your arms down, like a side yeah, chest, right. most muscular, sure. he he matches Lee Haney um, in those Absolutely. poses and possibly even looks better than him in some of them. He, yeah, side he chest, loses side triceps. Of, sorry, he side loses chest, a lot of ground. Side triceps, yeah. When, when he lifts his arms up and possibly from the back. Otherwise, Gary Stridham is an incredible bodybuilder and to have right. – and to take him down in – what looked like really good shape. I don't know if it was his best shape. And then you told me the competitors that were in that contest, that was a stacked yeah. contest. You had Albert Beckles in there, Gary Stridham. Right. Uh, who plays third? Uh, John Nadashak. Do you remember him? Now, John Nadashak, yeah. Who, yeah. Uh, was Ron Love in that show? He was not. Uh, Bob Paris was in that show. Bob Paris. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you couldn't stack a lineup any more than that. You pretty much had all the guys in the Olympia except Lee Haney, uh, Mike Christian and Rich Gaspari. Otherwise, you had the best of the best. You even had Ron Tufel in there. Right, right? even Ron Tufel. Th yeah. You're going to have to show us some photos of, of, of that, Phil. Have you got the magazine there? Yes, I do. Please um, show us something because I've, I never saw the contest. I never saw any of the magazines. Um, it kind of like was under the radar and I, I never really... Well, it didn't get a lot of promotion because it was three weeks before the Olympia. Okay. And you know how long pictures took to come out from a magazine. So the Olympia, of course, was the show of the year that people were waiting for. So this being three weeks before, it did. It, I'm surprised it got as much as I can show you. Yeah, yeah. Now, how, would it be a best way for me to put that in the camera? I can show yeah, you the first yeah, do page. That. Just put it straight up to the camera. Can you let me know if you can see that. Look, we we kind of can see it. There's, um, it's it's not really that. Yeah, that's that's better. Wow. Okay. I'll show um, you on the page. Show all the pages, please. Okay. Okay. Show us that again, because there's some back shots there. I actually. Want to have a yeah, look at those it's very hard shots. to see. They're not the clearest pictures, even in the magazine. Right. 
Well, look, you, you can pretty much tell what's going on. You're the guy all the way to the left. Right. Um, and right. you can right. tell where that contest was won, definitely. And then even from the front, even from the front, you looked fantastic. So you were, you were the obvious winner. Why did you go into the Olympia three weeks later? I tell you, I tell you a funny story. I, I've never had a coach. I kind of took a little advice. I'd ask Samir, I'd ask Ali Mala. I said, well, what do you think of this or that? Or, or you know, whoever I could, whoever was around that I could speak with. Because, you know, we did our own thing. And I used to keep notes and monitor the way I look. Well, I made the mistake at the last minute of taking aldactone. Right. A potassium sparing diuretic, right? Yes, yes. But I took potassium with that. Oh, okay. So wow, I, John, I don't remember the show. This is where autism and focus is really great because they got me out of bed, and I managed to focus my way through the show. I don't know how I did it. I don't remember anything about the show. This which show are we talking about? The Chicago Pro. Okay. Okay, so I don't remember the show at all. Now, being that, here, I don't. I have no memory of it. And what was that due to the, the potassium? Do you feel? Or? It must have been because it knocked me flat. I couldn't get out of bed. Jerry Brainham came in and brought sodium chloride and pulled me out of it. Yeah, yeah. And I have no memory of anything after that. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know. Um, if you've got enough potassium, potassium sparing diuretic with potassium, you were very close to stopping your heart. That's I felt death. I felt like I was on death's doorstep. I and this is not. how this is how simple it is. You you were probably taking a moderate dose of aldactone because I I don't even know what you were taking, but I just know that from our generation there was a fear that we all had about these drugs and we did we didn't abuse them so i'm pretty sure whatever you were doing it was, was moderate moderation. yeah it was very probably very moderate yeah i uh, you could fall into something like that very easily you know it's and and today people are dying and there's all sorts of uh, stories and excuses and most people don't have enough knowledge to know about potassium potassium sparing if you take two potassium sparing diuretics You've pretty much signed your own death warrant, which is wow. almost what you did that day. Because yeah, this yeah, like, do you remember Dr. Gavorkian? He yes, he made a euthanasia machine, Dr. right? Gavorkian, and yeah, he got arrested for it. That euthanasia that euthanasia machine was you in a room on your own. You, you push a button on the wall, and it tells you what's going to happen, you know, and it gives you a chance to pull yourself out of it and say, do you realize what you're doing? If you hit yes, it goes to the next question. And then it says to you, if you push this button next, this is what will happen. And which was you, you get, you know, you've got a drip in your arm or wherever they put it, you get the anesthetic. And then after the anesthetic, there's a lethal dose of potassium that just simply stops your heart. That's you know, I saw a that, film based on that. There's a, a film based, based on that, that right? Yeah. So it's yeah. a humane way, I, I guess, of ending your life. You certainly didn't have that in mind. So you actually went through the contest in yeah. that condition. In that condition. I don't remember a thing. It's amazing. I don't remember a thing about it to this day. Well, thank God you've got that magazine. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's that's an incredible story. So, look, you've you've been right up there, and I think uh, you were probably one of those people. You know, you talk about people that could have won the Mister Olympia and so forth. You know, um, you you didn't really get a chance. I I know from talking to you how focused you can get, and I, I feel that if you put something like that in your sights. You know, and I could tell you weren't a regular competitor, so you were one of these guys that thought carefully about where you were going next. Right. And, and I'll tell you too, John, uh, I've never had a sponsor, right? So from every show I competed in, from a teenager, I had an eight-hour-a-day job. Yeah. Mostly working in nightclubs, security. I would always get a job doing that, so I ran security. I started bouncing in nightclubs when I was 17, Wow. In high school. And you had to be 21 to come into the club. Yeah. Okay. And I'm working the door at 17. So I've worked eight-hour jobs for every show throughout my whole bodybuilding career. I've never had a sponsorship. So the money came out of pocket for every show I entered, which meant traveling expenses, performance-enhancing drugs, which I used very little because I didn't have a lot of money to spend. Then I had to pay for my car pay for rent where I was living. So, I mean, I, I did it on a budget, mm, mm. on a tight budget. Uh, look, it's good for people to know that because you can do it on a tight budget. Oh, sure. Um, the amount of money that bodybuilders spend to get ready for a show these days is astronomical. I can't imagine. And I'm not sure how they're able to hold a family and do so, but obviously there's sponsorships available which you didn't have. No. Um, well, Phil, that that is really really interesting. So you know, to me, that makes you an incredible student of bodybuilding. Um, you, you know, you've got a job in a health food store. Um, right. <clears throat> personal training is it's in your blood. You know, I if yeah. I, I understand, though, why you pull away from it. It can be very consuming and really saps your energy. You know, you're giving a person the best that you could possibly give them. But you invest your time and energy into that and person. Yeah. They, they don't really appreciate it. They don't really know what they've, what they've got. They can't see the difference between you and other coaches. Uh, they won't allow you to take them to the next level, which you could have done, and the other coaches probably wouldn't have been able to. I, right. I, I myself couldn't think of a better person to use than yourself. But anyway, let's, so I want to ask you now about the, your actual training because you surprised me that you're paying so much attention to a particular type of training method, which is the, hate, the, the HIT, yeah. hit uh, principles. You, I met Mike Mincer at a seminar, and I had, I had a job at a gym in St. Louis, George Turner's gym. Yes. He was responsible for training and helping uh, Ken Waller, Samir Banute, Tony Pearson, some other guys you'd never heard of that reached a high level in the AAU, and myself. I worked in his gym as a teenager when I was 18. Mike Mincer came over and did a seminar, and I talked to him about training. And he stayed there after the seminar was over and the guest posing, and he stayed sort of talked to me about high-intensity training. And I didn't really understand it, all of it, but, I mean, I started using it at that point. So back then, you know, we would try to train each body part twice a week. 
I started training each body part once a week and whoa, what a difference. So my really took my progress really took off. And then in 81, I met Ray Mincer. When I came out to California in 81, I met with Mike. He talked to me about California, what to look out for, the craziness, the madness, and all those things. Kind of warned me about certain people, groups to stay away from, which I was happy to get. And I met Ray. Ray and I started training together. I started training with him, rather. And he trained me. I trained with him as a workout partner for six months. So I learned everything from him. Okay. And that's the type of training I use. Now, I'm not, I don't train heavy. I train moderately heavy, but I train at a very slow tempo. So a set may take as much, twice as long as the average set because it's slow velocity. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you. So, you know, my question was your load. So you've already told us. You're not going for those heavy weights. Um, this sounds like really smart training, what you're talking about, because so you've stuck to the one or two sets per exercise, say three exercises per body part. Is is, is that pretty three much exercises? Yeah, for the most part. Let's say for back, uh, you have four areas of the back. You have the lats, you have the upper back, you have the middle back, you have the lower back. I do more like 11 sets. 11 sets. 11 sets. I do, let's say, for example, one back workout would be three sets of T-bar rows. The second work exercise would be seated cable rows. The third exercise would be two sets of novelist pullovers. And the fourth exercise would be reverse hyperextensions. Yes. Okay. The next back workout would alternate. It would be three sets of bent over rows, three sets of seated cable rows, three sets of close grip pull-downs, and then three sets of hyperextensions. Okay. So that alternates every yes. other workout. Yes. That's an, an example there. So I would imagine that each one of your reps probably takes around eight seconds to perform. You'd probably be two seconds on the way up, three seconds lowering it, a pause, much, at, the top, yes. a pause at the bottom, and you've got right. an eight repetition, uh, an eight-second repetition, and how many reps would you typically perform? For upper body, 8 to 15 for upper body exercises. For lower body exercises, uh, 15 to 20 reps on average. Okay. Now, when Mike Mensa was out in Australia before the Mr. Olympia contest, the famed 1980 Mr. Olympia contest, um, we were training in the same gym. I was competing the same day that he was. And right. he saw that I had those leather straps for doing back, you know, wrapping wrapping them around the bar. He saw that I had those. So he was doing back, I was doing back, and he worked in with me. And what I noticed, um, this was the workout, the last workout I was doing before the contest. I ended my back session with 15 sets, total of 15 sets I did for my back. Mike, from the t- I, I left after a while. He gave me back the straps and, and I left. I counted 25 sets that Mike did and I asked him about it. And he said, wow. well, look, this is more just because I'm nervous. Um, so, you know, and there, there have been other times where he's been caught doing multiple sets Really? When he was training with Casey Viado, somebody approached him and 
he said, well, basically, this is for chiseling the muscle. Now, I'm not sure what he meant by chiseling the muscle, but there were times that Mike Mensah was caught doing a lot of sets, and you know, I and I and I witnessed it. So I, I wow. do understand that he that he trained the way you described, the way you're training, and I've trained that way as well. I'm actually more or less doing it now, pretty much like what you've described. But there were times when Mike Mensah had been caught doing a lot of sets, and I don't know what was behind it, except that it must have had some sort of benefit. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I heard that the owner of Go's Gym, what was his name? He wrote a book, The Three Musketeers. Um, Ed Connors. Ed Connors stated that Mike trained a lot more than he said. Yep. I never saw it. I trained with Ray, and it was pretty short and intense. But Ed Connors always said that. So well, I, I mean, never know. You know, they never talk about – look, the, this all comes from the Colorado experiment with Arthur Casey, Jones and Casey Vieta. No yeah. one ever really discusses the warm-ups. They just right. discuss going to one, one set to failure. And I'm going, well, you know, how do you do one set to failure with your top weight – and no right. warm-ups. So myself, when I do that sort of training, I might do one or two warm-up sets of, say, three repetitions or ten repetitions, but the weights are so light that you don't need to rest. I, I'll do one warm-up set, generally, sometimes two, if it's early in the workout. And then without any rest, I go straight into that set. And at the moment, I'm really enjoying the high reps, so it's right. it's not time under tension, but it's a lot of reps where um, – and I'll tell you who gave me the idea of these repetitions was uh, Rick Valenti because oh, he's, he's yeah. doing sets of 50 repetitions. I saw that, yes. And, and I tried it. And you know what? Like if you're doing three exercises for, say, your triceps and you've done a set of 50 on each one, you, you're going to have – a pumped up arm. You're going to have a good tricep workout, and it's only one set. Um, you probably really get to failure way. Be, you know, at 35 reps, I would actually reach proper failure. But because it's such a light weight, and you know you're not going to get injured, you can cheat, and you can keep right. moving it, which then gives you the time under tension. So that's that's what I'm doing at the moment. You're simply doing the same, but less repetitions. Right. Which which is really interesting. And Phil, have you always trained that way? I have. I have. Uh, I guess I say I've never trained very heavy. I've never had to to grow. Intensity and moderately heavy weights has always worked for me. And that's the way I've always trained. To this day, I've, to this day, I've never been injured. Well, in the that's, gym. that's something because I can't say that. And, you know, I've I've had a lot of um, things happen to me, but it wasn't necessarily from the gym. That's where they would happen. It's usually something silly that I did outside the gym. Then you come in the gym, pick up a weight, you hurt yourself, and you, you blame it on the exercise. But you know, to each his own. Look, I mean, look at the mess that Ronnie Coleman got himself in. Oh with, yeah, what what damage? Yeah, you know, I mean, this arm here. I've had fourteen elbow operations, and oh. probably need another one. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I've done a lot of, and this was from something that happened outside the gym, you know? Right. So look, you, you, um, you've been doing that your whole time and I never would have guessed it. 
I actually never would have guessed it, but you're obviously a very smart person, very smart trainer, and um, you know you, it's not one set to failure what you're doing, but it's it's close enough. And like right. I said, nobody ever spoke of any real warm up sets, so you'd probably see the Dorian would be doing the same thing because he came to my gym when you know he won his second Mr Olympia, and yeah, yeah. he was a strong guy. And he did tell me that he wasn't going to go to his maximum because it was a, a new place. He wasn't yeah. used to the equipment. So Got he wasn't you. going to really sense. push. But still, the weights that he used were, were quite heavy. I mean, we had a stack yeah. on, on one of the lat pull-downs, which is well over 300 pounds. And he was using it for repetitions with not wow. too much difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so... I'm not, uh, I tell you, I'm not a strong bodybuilder. I'm a medium to small bone guy with small joints. So the illusion on stage, I've always looked a lot bigger than I actually was. Well, Phil, this is... The so I've never had to... I never tried to use... Heavy. Whenever I went real heavy, it felt uncomfortable. And I'd lighten it up and then slow down the repetitions and squeeze and contract more to make sure I got full range of motion with maximum contraction from rep one. By the time you hit 15, you go to failure pretty yeah. easily because you're squeezing all that blood into the muscle. Yeah. Isn't that slow? Well, the thing I wanted to ask you, basically, with that system, it's under the guise of the stronger you are, the bigger the muscles get, which I don't agree with. Right, I don't agree with that either. Right, so please tell me your version, because if these guys, I say to myself, well, you can't go in every workout and just put more weight on the bar and do extra reps. No, it's no. just it, it's 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 insane. It's you, you know. Yeah. You're going. Something's going to give. So eventually, you get injured. Exactly. So, what was the method that you used to improve? Did you have a special way or a different way of uh, controlling that intensity? Because you weren't just putting extra weight on the bar. You weren't just doing extra reps. And I did see Mike Menser a couple of times train some of his students, and their form was not the best. No, you know, okay. they, were, yeah. they were doing whatever yeah. they could just to get that weight up. Yeah, no, I'm a, I was always a form fanatic. I'm fanatical about form. So form is, I learned form first. I want to perfect the form so or perfect the exercise. So I do it in perfect form. And from there, if I get stronger, I slightly increase from one workout to the next, maybe uh, two and a half pounds on each side of the bar. That's say, and I increase for, let's say, three or four or five weeks, and then I deload, and then I build back up again. Okay, so with the deload, please explain that because that sounds uh, like some seriously smart stuff here. <laughs> okay, about every six weeks, either I take four or five days off yeah. and I deload, which means I drop about 25% of the weight and slow it down even slower and squeeze full range of motion, okay. maximum contraction to failure, and then from there, I start to slowly increase again, but these increases can be, you know, minimum, maybe two and a half pounds to five pounds every other workout. But then over I that six-week period, are you merely just going back to where you were or what's what's the game plan behind that? I... If I can explain this a little better, maybe. I'm not so concerned about the strength, but the intensity. But the weight has to be right. 
So okay. if I go through a workout today and I get 15 reps on bent over rows, the next workout I may try to either repeat or slightly increase and shoot for the 15 reps. I get to the point where if I'm getting like 12, 8, let's say 10, 11, 12 reps after increasing each workout, then I'll deload, go back, and then try to slightly rise above the next time around, if that makes sense. Okay, so the next time... I can put that on paper and say it better. I might not be putting in the right words. Well, look, it sounds like you, you are deloading, and then when you train back up to heavy weights... A certain point, then I go back. And then... Try to just slightly rise above and yep. and then completely it's in sort of like stages like that or in steps. But there's always a deload and maybe a break after six to eight weeks, depending on how I feel and how recovery is. So now let's say you go back to what you were doing a year ago on say Ben over Rose, just for the sake of picking something. It's a year later now. Are you using this more or less the same weight, a little bit more weight. A year later, how is it looking? Well, right now, at this age, I'm not worried about the increase or the load so much. It's just the intensity at this point. Okay. I'm not trying to get stronger. It's 63 coming up. So you're finding ways to increase that intensity. Exactly. Without increasing the load. Without having to necessarily increase by too much. And you know what? If I do, it's not a lot. I really appreciate that because it's very difficult to explain to anyone. And it's obviously a mindset which I've adopted and and, and it's the same thing. I'm thinking I I put a cap on weights. So there's no reason for me to be using more than 225 for doing rows. There's no reason to go heavier than that. If you go heavier than that, you don't know how to train. Those days are over, yeah. You don't know how to train. Those heavy days are over. You know, right now, so, it's just formed. It's you know execution of the exercise. It's full range of motion. It's squeezing. It's stretching the muscle and taking it into complete failure. And I do that also training each body part every ten to eleven days. Wow! Okay. At this point, in the sixties, if I get each body part in three times a month, that's every ten or eleven days. That's a, that's good. So then, how are you structuring the workouts? Let's say it's the beginning of the month. Oh, okay. Uh, the first week? Let's say the first week, I'm going to say I'm going to do chest, shoulders, and triceps, day one. Okay? Chest, shoulders, and triceps, that's push day. Yeah, yeah. push day. I'm going to rest two days. If I feel recovered enough, on the fourth day, so that's two days rest, it will be back, biceps, and calves. Then I'll take another two days off following that workout, and it would be thighs and hamstrings. Depending on how I recover and the level of intensity I reach and degree of soreness, I may take two or three days off, then repeat, go back to chest, shoulders, and tricep again. Well, look, that's um, – I'm, I'm probably going to try this, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Now, your diet – what was it like when you were competing, leading into a contest? What was your off-season? And then tell us what you're doing now. 
I've never eaten fast foods, processed foods. I read, this is at 15, I started, a guy taught me how to read the labels on everything I buy, John. So I read the labels. If there's excess sodium or sugar in there, I don't buy it. So I eat the same foods every day and I have the same, it would be chicken breast, turkey breast, or ground white turkey, uh, lean red meat, uh, sometimes we'll have salmon or seafood. Uh, this, it, I eat the same. My diet hasn't changed for the last 30 or 40 years. I buy the same foods. I prepare them the same way. I That never changes. I really don't eat in restaurants. If I do, then I'm very selective about the meals I choose. This and I've always like... been that way. I think, again, that goes with the mind. Yeah. My mind... I don't taste food. I don't like food in particular. There's nothing I like more than anything else that I eat. I don't favor any foods. I actually, I don't think I have taste buds, to be honest with you. I kid you not, but I tell you this, my, my, my wife used to laugh about it. She's laughing about it, but I'm telling you the truth. So I, I'm a, that, I, again, I think that goes along with the autism. Look, I, I just think it's the mindset of a champion because the other day I was speaking to someone and they wanted me to come up with a 12-month bulking program, then a 12-month um, get-in-shape program, and they wanted a different diet every week of the year. And I'm going, are you sure about this? Like, not only is that a lot of work because, look, I'm a qualified specialist in sports nutrition and, you know, we probably know the same stuff. Okay, forget about the title. Um, I, I learned everything the same way you did, self-taught, yeah. and the things that were in that course were excellent. Um, it was very interesting, but I, I, I think I, I knew more than what was already in the course, just the same way you probably did, because we've been doing it for the last forty years. Forty years, right? yeah. yeah. And there's certain foods that I like, and I want them every day. Except people at a different level are like, yeah, no, I can't eat the, I can't eat this, and I, I need something different the next day. And um, I, I, I don't know, if, <laughs> I, I don't know if, if I could actually do that. Where what do you go looking for? You have your favorite foods. Yeah, I mean, there's foods that, like I said, it's with carbohydrates. Let's say it's strawberries, blueberries, banana in the morning. Uh, the rest of the day, it's either brown rice or basmati rice, sweet potatoes, and then vegetables. Those are basically my, my those are my carbohydrates. Every day have been for decades, and along with the other proteins I've mentioned, that's all I ever eat. Okay. And that's maybe four or five small meals a day, and I, I, I still to this, this day nothing's changed. I don't think about it. I don't think about it. When it's time to eat, I eat. I don't think about food at all. Do you food never enters my mind you except when food it's in the morning time. and bring it with you for the day, or yeah? Well, my wife and I will cook. One day we'll cook, and that would cook for like a three day period, and then we'll repeat that. And three days later, we'll do the same thing again and make enough to last at least for two or three days. Well, look, uh, now that you're talking about her, tell us a little bit about your wife. Does she train with you? She eats? She's my workout partner. She's your workout partner. Yeah, wow. she does every exercise that I do, set per set, everything. 
Well, you got you sound like you've got partner for the last ten years. You, you you sound like you've got yourself a good partner there. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. she's a. I mean, she's. I I need a workout partner. Now what she what does intensity? What what sort of work does she do? This um. So, she does caregiving. Okay, okay. She's a care, in home caregiver. It's really interesting. I, you know, that would be an ideal situation to actually have a. A partner or a wife um, that you know that you could do that with and have as a life yeah. partner. So you've got that under control, and it sounds really good. Congratulations! <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. She's she's incredible. Um, you know, uh, the area I'm at, I'm sort of away from LA. I'm about 55 miles away from Venice Beach or Gold's Gym North. Yeah, Ventura. I don't know if you remember hearing about it when you were here. It's a small city. It's about one hundred eight thousand. It's What's on it? the ocean. What's it called? Ventura. Oh, Ventura. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of Ventura. Um, yeah. There's even a song about it uh, from the yeah. Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, they, they, the, the Eagles did a lot of Californian songs. Oh, um, the Eagles. Yeah. Yeah, sure. and. They were talking about Ventura Highway or something. Oh, Ventura like Highway, yeah. 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 Okay, look, you, you know, Phil, because I lost touch with you, I, I actually didn't realise that, you, you know, you went into the pros and you did really well. I actually thought I used to speak about you in the same breaths as um, myself and Matt Mendenhall, a guy that yeah, I, I thought you'd never even turn pro, and, and I used to use that as... Well, look at Phil Williams. This guy's got a world-class physique. Um, he pushed Lee Haney to the brink, and I thought you'd never got your pro card. Then somebody said, no, he did, and he actually won the show. That well, like, well, like I said, the show really did get a lot of publicity, and, and then, of course, you got the Olympia three weeks later, and everybody wants to, you know, yeah. Olympia. Yeah. So it's it sort of, because of the timing of the show, it probably didn't get as much exposure as it would have been, it had been six months earlier than the Olympia. It's a big surprise, and you know, to me, it was a contest that I actually missed. I didn't get yeah, the magazines. Oh, you, I didn't yeah, see you it. So may it was, have been in '88. Were you still in the U.S. or had you gone back to Australia? In '88, uh, I went back in '89. So in '88, I was still in the USA. Oh, okay. I'll tell you a funny story. Now, this going to 1990 when Dorian was beat by Beniziza in yes. the Night of the Champions. I went to see the show. Yes. And I run into Wayne D'Amelia, ended up hanging out with him, went to his house with him, went over to his house in New York. And I remember this very well. He said, well, I don't, you can see that the guys are getting bigger. This is what he said to me. And I said, yeah, I see. He goes, well, in order to, you know, be at the top, you're going to have to put on 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. And I kind of looked at him and I said, well, how am I supposed to do that? He said, well, tell me what you're taking. What did you take for the shows? And I told him, performance-enhancing drug-wise, what I took. And I'll tell you, this is what I told him. I said, I take one cc a test, uh, 12 weeks out, one cc a test, which is like 250 milligrams. I said, I use one cc Prevolin every seven days. That's 100 milligrams. 100 milligrams. Yep. And I said, if I can get Anavar, I take up to, I start with, Five a day, and I work up to 15, sometimes maybe 20, and I stay with that. And then, as it is that milligrams, the show, or you, you said 15 to 20 
milligrams. 15 to 20 uh, milligrams of anabar. Yeah. With, they were two and a half milligrams back yeah, then. Yeah. So, and I told him that. And he goes, what else do you take? I said, well, that was it. That was it. And he started laughing. He goes, I, I know women who use more than that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he said, boy, you're going to have to step it up. This is what he told me. He goes, they're using GH now and IGF-1. And he started naming a bunch of drugs that I'd never heard of. And I looked at him and I said, well, what does that cost? He goes, well, it costs a lot of money. So uh, I competed in 92. I, uh, of course, couldn't afford the drugs. Yeah. I found out what GH cost back at that time. And it, we're talking about thousands of dollars, right? I mean, thousands. So I, I couldn't afford to do it. So that was sort of the beginning of the end. But I mean, so Phil, like, have you ever used GH? No. I. No. It, let's put it this way. Whatever you get out of anabolic steroids, if you're going to compare GH to it, it's nowhere near it. I, I think it can work well if if you understand what it does. And to me, what it really did was I could diet like an idiot, do dumb things, and it's really good uh, for helping hold on to the muscle size. And what I've also noticed is that as you put on weight, it can help you keep the hardness. But all this business of how big it makes you and all that, it just... And, and you know what? When people say you have a, a GH gut, I think what they're right. talking about is the fact that you can eat so much food on it and stay hard, you're going to end up, you know, if you eat a lot of food, you, you're going to stretch your, your stomach. Your it's, stomach it, well. it really sure. has nothing to do with the GH except that you can eat that much more and retain hardness. So then you, you'll end up with a gut covered, yeah. covered in vascularity, which is ugly. Right. You I end up with a distended with yeah. gut because it allows you to eat. Okay, so you stay harder. But the side effect of that is you're filling your stomach up and stretching it to the point. And I, I thought, you know, is it a really good drug? No. Do people no. use too much of it? Yes. Yes, yeah. Um, well, is mean, it absolutely positively necessary? Absolutely not. The, the yeah. stack that you were talking about, to my way of thinking, if you're going to have to do any more than that, you, you, you're increasing your chances of the side effects and not necessarily increasing um, your growth that much. Right. You know, I think yeah. if you need any more than that, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, Wayne was never a competitive bodybuilder and he gave a lot no. of advice like that right. out. Of course. He and had a lot of information which, I mean, I'm sure he spoke with everyone like he yeah. spoke with me yeah. that day. And so I guess he thought he knew a lot. And, and yeah. to be honest with you, I never – I studied training. I studied nutrition. Twelve weeks before show, I knew what I had to take. And if I managed to get what I wanted, I never studied it. I didn't put energy into that to find out, you know – what steroids, what more what they could do, this and that. I depended on training and nutrition in my genetics. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the steroids, the 12 weeks out, was sort of be like the equivalence of a beauty contest and a woman using makeup. Does that make sense? Phil, it makes absolute sense because when we were talking a couple of weeks ago, I think I, Jean-Pierre and I were exchanging what we took. 
and I don't know if you remember what my like you, you know I remember yeah it's pr- probably my second or third cycle ever and that's when I won my division in the in the universe and it was pretty much along the same lines as what you just described yeah you, you mean, were that... using primabol and 100 milligrams a week I was using 100 milligrams a week of durabilin fast acting deca yeah durabilin you I were using slow acting testosterone I was using propionate which I used to start 3 weeks out and right. I took exactly 17 and a half milligrams of Anavar a day. We didn't know each other. Right. We, we didn't exchange. And it's just that we came from the same school of thought, uh, regardless of whether you, you have to be um, trained on this sort of stuff or it came to you. It was, it was sensible. And I, I don't think you need any more than that. I've, I've tried more than that. I've definitely tried more than that. But I can't say that it that I could depend on it for anything. Once you've taken that much, you've opened up the window. Right. Then it's the training and the diet. And, and to me, staying on a diet and, and the, 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 you know, the consistency of staying on a diet and not coming off the diet right. is significantly more important than whatever anabolics you're taking. That's sure. the school of thought that I come from. You, you know, for me, the training had to work, the diet had to work before yeah. the anabolic steroids. Right. And, and the then, then we would take them 12 weeks out. If you needed help sometimes in the off-season, you would yeah. do them again, which more often than not I would do. Um, and that was about it. You know, when I first turned pro, the first two two years, I I, I was never able to come off because of all the things that you had thrown at you. And then I got, well, you know, I, I don't know what's coming up next. What, what do I do? Do I come off every... So for about a two or three year period, I was constantly, um, you know, taking Cycling. stuff in, in that manner, yeah. not, not not the full dose. Um, other than that, I, I think whatever it was that you did, I probably did the same because it was sensible and, and it worked. And I think that's, yeah, yeah. It, that's it, the area that we came from. I learned too that if you overused them, you stayed on them, you would dull your receptors. This is yes. what I was taught. And yeah. that you had to take much more or you'd end up with health health problems. So after the 12 weeks, I'd always come off. And the only time I would go back on would be 12 weeks before the next show. So even in the off season, I didn't use anything. And that was the best way to go because honestly, was, yeah. um, what I did notice is being – playing around with them on a regular basis just stops the effectiveness. So then you need to increase and go to more. Now, I don't know how guys today can take 5,000 milligrams a week. I think that's – that's that, well, I mean I – Some guys are taking 5,000 milligrams a day. I, I can't imagine that. I just, I, I just couldn't. I, I just – I don't know how you would even do something like that. What would you actually find? you know, to keep taking, once you've taken your Primabolin, which is 100 milligrams, or, or Deca, which now comes in 200 or so milligrams, once you've taken a couple of mils of each and you've taken a couple of mils of test and perhaps an oral, what what else are you throwing in? Well, <laughs> I, I, look, at some stage I'm going to interview someone that's probably going to reveal what these high dosages are all about and even a, a huge guy like Jean-Pierre Fuchs, I don't know if you remember what he said he was taking. Yeah. It was more oh. or less 
a, a little bit more than what we were describing at his peak and then he would actually come off. You know, yeah. and when he told me what he was doing, how he trained when he was off, and I thought this is a pretty smart dude, the way he's handled it. You know, and he came along in the 90s, didn't he? He was late right. 90s. Yeah, he, I competed against him in my last show. I'll, I'll tell you the story. I went to the Night of the Champions. In Chicago, I was, I'm five, six and a half. Okay. I was 201. So I understood. I saw the guys getting bigger coming out of the USA and the Nationals turning pro, and they were getting bigger every year. And of course, I've heard about GH, I heard about IGF1 and insulin and some of the things that they and the dosages. I started hearing about it. But I mean, it's just something I couldn't do. Yeah. I competed in the Night of the Champions in 92, and I think I ended up 12th. Right. If I remember correctly. And I weighed 212 and I have photos and I'm in I'm in good condition, not as sharp as Chicago, of course. If I would have been in that condition, I would have had to weigh more, more like 205, yeah. 206. Yeah. I would have had yeah. to lose an additional 10 pounds. But I'm trying to get bigger. Four years later, I competed in the 96 Ironman. I take 10th. Two weeks later, the San Jose Pro, where I took 15th. John Pierre Fuchs was in that show, and I saw him the first time. Gene, and I figured right then I said, "I'm out of this." This is, I, and I was two sixteen at that show in good condition, in, in pretty good condition, and that's carrying a lot of muscle for a guy five six and a half. Absolutely. And my idea of bodybuilding. I mean, I look back at your physique. I look back at Frank Zane, maybe a little bigger. Uh, if you look at physiques like uh, Robbie Robinson at his best, about my height, same yep. similar structure, yep. Samir Benuton, 83, Absolutely. 82, same, about the same height, similar structure. That was my idea of bodybuilding. I wanted to look beautiful on stage. Yes. When I went out on stage, I wanted women to throw their panties at me. Yes, like it was a yes. Tom Jones concert, yep. right? Yep. I didn't want to look gorilla-ish. I've never trained to look like a gorilla. So in the 90s, that was that was my exit because the guys started looking gorilla-ish. Okay, so basically in the 90s, you just said enough's enough. In 96, I was 36 years old. Yeah. And I said, I'm not going to – I don't have the money to invest in all this shit that I don't know how well it's going to work on me. I don't know what it's going to do. I'm spending – money to be a pro. I'm not making money being a pro. Yeah. Uh, this is something me? people didn't. Un- I'm what? spending money to be a pro. It's costing me to be a pro. Yeah. So it's time to get out. I mean, with your personality, I, I wouldn't see you approaching anybody. They would have had to have approached you, well, given you a yeah. good deal, uh, made you feel secure. And that's, that's just something that you didn't have in you to go out there and do, which I didn't do either. I actually, Joe Weeder was offering me stuff, and I just, um, I politely declined. I'm going to tell you a funny Weeder story. You're going to laugh. After they went in the NPC USA in 84, yeah. I'm invited to go see Joe. I'm shy guy. Like I said, you know, I said, Joe, uh, I said, I said, is there any possible way that we could do a contract? And he said, oh, no, I can't give you a contract. And I heard he'd given a lot of guys a contract. He said, no, I can't do that. He says, what I'll do, when you're in shape, I'll pay you $300 
for every article that you do. And I said, okay. And I left there and I thought, man, $300 for every article once I get back in shape again. So I, I kind of leave and I kind of mess with my head a little bit. I kind of felt disappointed. Mm-hmm. I go back after I win the NPC Nationals and take second in the World Championships. And I'm hoping, you know, well, man, I did a little more. At least I won the Nationals after that. You know, no one's ever won the USA and the Nationals overall. I'm the only guy to do that in PC history. So maybe that means something, right? And, of course, I took runner-up in the World Championships. But let's see what he says. He says, I'll pay you $300 for every article that you do once you're back in shape again. So it was the same thing. And I think, Damn. And I, you know, new guys that had a contract, they could sleep all day, trained, not have to worry about going out looking, working eight hours at night, which is what I had to do, right? Because I remember Gary had a contract, you know, the guys that had him were around me, Mike Quinn, Mike, uh, I think Christian had one. So I went to Chicago Pro. I go and see Joe. And I'm thinking, well, this is the last time. Maybe he'll do it this time. I'll get a contract. He told me the same thing again. $300 for every article that you do, and next time you're about in shape. And I just looked at him, I said, thanks, Joe. And I never spoke to him again. Yeah. I, look, I, 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 I can never that stuff out. There were people there that were clearly not at your level, right? Um, I, I they thought, had these, yeah. They had these contracts. It could have been your shy personality. He just probably thought to himself, I, I wouldn't be able to get this guy to be – um, over the top or anything like that. He's, he's, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But this is one of the reasons why I did not pursue it any further because you're only going to be – I, I don't know what the rules were. And once I actually got in fairly decent shape, I went to Los Angeles. I went and saw him. And he goes, ah, come and see me when you're in really good shape. And I'm going, well, that's contest shape. This is close yeah. to it. Isn't this good enough? Right. You know, like that. All that was missing was the drying out, the the last three weeks of like really pushing the diet. You know, I, I wasn't far off. I don't know what he expected. Um, yeah. yeah, but yeah. after that experience, first of all, I refused him. But then when I went and tried. After that experience, I remember talking to Tom Platts. He asked, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, well, you know, I went and saw Joe and this happened and that happened. And he just quietly said underneath his breath, what a pain in the ass it it all is when you've got to go through that sort of stuff. And obviously you went through it. And um, I'm probably glad that I didn't get involved. You know know what it taught me by not getting a contract? To be self-sufficient. I never depended on anybody for anything. Yep. I always had to get up off my ass and go take yep. care of it myself. Yep. If it was money, that's I always had to do that. I've always worked for every show. Like I said, an eight-hour job, well, whether it was Phil, working in I, nightclubs, security I jobs. I, I was the yeah. same. I did not – look, funny enough, towards the end, I actually got a couple of people sponsoring me. There was um, Nature's Bounty from um, New York. It was Long Island. And then I got back to Australia and um, MLO, they were both giving me $500 a month. Now, in the early 90s, uh, $1,000 a month 
was probably enough to survive. But I, I had my own business. And, um, you know, there have been other times where I actually came back to Australia, I guess posed, and then I got on stage to have a, a talk with the promoter's wife, who me, the promoter, and his wife were all close friends. So we spoke like we normally would, which upset some sponsor who was sitting in the audience with a $50,000 check, which uh, in 1990 was a lot of money. You could have bought a house with that. That's a lot of money. And because I answered a question the way John Torelli normally answers a question to his friends, uh, they tore up the check. And when I heard about it, I said, you know what? For a few minutes, I kind of threatened thread it over and then I said this is good you're going to have to go out and do it by yourself now yeah, yeah. you're going to have to rely on yourself and no one but yourself and you'll be responsible for that and I prefer that well I mean looking back I'm glad I've learned to do that because I can I, I don't have a problem doing that now that's why you know if I need a job I'm working GNC right now but if I needed a security job I have no problem going out and getting a job I mean like I said I've never relied on anyone and, and you, you couldn't back then. I mean, that was, I mean, great if you could, it's, I don't know if it's free money, but I mean, it's money for not much. You may be taking a picture or doing this or showing up at, but some of the, I've heard some crazy contracts in the nineties. I, I don't know if that exists today the way it did. I, but, I, I uh, don't know what people do today. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, what, what they're getting or what they're getting paid, but I would imagine the top guys are probably on um, sure. some sort of good ticket. I would, I would think they have to be. Yeah, they would have to be. I, you, you know, I, you know Hattie, Hattie Choppin, you know he's a goat herder. Yes, yeah. He's a goat herder, and now I'm not sure where he's living. I'm, he, he's obviously going to have a sponsor. Somebody should be sponsoring him. Oh, he does. He has the guy that's training him, and I can't remember the name of his supplement company. Hanny, Hanny, Hanny Rambod? Yes. Evo, Evogen? Evogen. There you go. Evogen. I couldn't remember the name, but yeah. yeah. So he's that's, working that's, with him. He's okay. working with, yeah, Derek, the guy that took second. And I think he's working with uh, the guy that won the uh, – oh, Seabone, the one C-bone. the uh, classic. Yeah, well, he's, he's, he's training. Uh, he's they're all involved in the same little clique. There you go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, and of course, he trained, money. he trained Phil Heath for seven Olympias. So yeah, doing it's well. All, it's all very interesting now, Phil. What next? Are you just gonna? Do you have any plans or anything that you're going to be doing or? Well, not really. Uh, it's one day at a time. Uh, you know, I continue to train and do what I do. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of doors opening in, in bodybuilding. Maybe personal training might return. Might back. If it does, I mean, I'm great. I'd be, you know, I'd be real willing to do that. And if it doesn't, but then where I'm at right now, you don't have that type of environment. In the, you don't have that type of guys that are interested in bodybuilding. Now, right now, you see a bunch of kids in the gym, and they want to go in and they have fun. And it, it's more of a—it's not a serious environment. It's a serious gym, but you don't see real bodybuilders potential in there. That guys that are getting ready for shows—I don't see a lot of that anymore. Well, let me ask you: what what gym do you train at? What's the name of your gym? I, I train at a gym called BSF here in Ventura. 
B, BS? Better, stronger, faster, it's called. Bigger, stronger, faster. Okay. Better, stronger, faster. Yeah. And then there's another gym near me called Underground okay. Fitness, which is more of a harder core gym in a basement gym. And it's spacious and has different equipment. I, between the two, I could put together everything I want to do. What one gym doesn't have, the other will have. So I've based my routine working one back workout at this gym, the next one at that one. You know what I'm saying? One leg workout in this one, the next one over there. So I have everything between two gyms that I need. So, so Phil, um, you're taking one day at a time. Pretty much, yeah. You, you pretty much love what you're doing. Uh, you don't have any long-term goals. Well, just, I mean, at, at our age now, to stay healthy, of yes, course. Yes, absolutely. Stay in shape, stay healthy, yeah, 100%. Uh, like I said, I'm 63 on Saturday, so from here on out, you know, you, you know, hopefully, you know, I don't know uh, if I have any poor genetic history or anything like that yep. being adopted. So a lot of times you can inherit different things that you aren't aware of that could run, yeah, yeah, you know, through the genes. Yep. But I mean, I just take it and stay healthy as I can, and and you know, just one day at a time, man. Yeah, no, I I, I get that, and um, you, you know, you're doing a good job. What um, let's let's finish off. Um, is anything you want to say about the family? Uh, you don't have a coach, that's for sure. So no, you, don't have you a know, coach? We, I had George Turner when I was a teenager. Yeah, like I said, when I was eighteen, he talked to me about steroids, told me how to use them, and from what I learned from him, I used to write every workout down, write down what I eat, take a look, and I sort of monitored. I focused on the way I was looking how I was eating and put a lot of focus and energy into that. So I was sort of learned from him, but at the same time, I let no, you live in your body. No one knows it better than you. Exactly. If you're paying attention to it, right. You're paying attention to what you're doing. You're going to learn. Look, um, you have a wealth of knowledge. All I can say is, um, you're enjoying yourself. At least you're not doing things that you don't like which is really important, and whatever time we have left on this earth, it is a good idea to probably live it in a manner that makes you comfortable. Sure. Um, And it seems like you're doing that. So I was going to ask you if there was anybody that you wanted to thank um, or, you know, mention. um, George Turner was your coach, and you haven't really had any coaches. We've discussed the gyms that you're at. we know your family background. Um, is there anybody else that you'd like to thank? Wow. Uh, top of my head. Well, you Ooh. should thank Jerry Brainham for saving your ass at the Chicago. Yeah. And I have every time I see him. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you what we had. Uh, I'll tell you. I, met, I saw Jerry Labor Day. We had Memorial Day yeah. here. I'm sorry, yeah. not Labor Day, Memorial Day. Yeah, and we go to the Venice Beach Championships. Yeah. You know, on the boardwalk, yeah. where the iron uh, little pit was, right? Yeah, yeah. they have a competition there yeah. on Memorial Day, Fourth of July, and Labor Day. So I went. We went down there on Labor Day, and uh, Corey Everson was there. Mm-hmm. Also, Samir Banu. 
Now, Samir, I need to th- I can always thank because in- Samir invited me to California when I was 20 years old. And he let me stay with them for six weeks until okay. I found a job okay. and found a place to stay for myself. So I owe him that thanks. I always thank him for that. And Jerry again. And uh, wow. Hey, I like to mention, too, I-, I don't know if you heard, Mike Quinn passed away. Yes, I did. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. I didn't speak with him, but we messaged each other back and forth a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. And it didn't sound like he was in the best of health for some of the from what I had heard. And then he vanished completely. Mm. I'll tell you a crazy story. He and I he and, he and I was in Scotland and his sister passed away while we were on tour in Scotland. And that really was a blow to him. I remember that real well. He just sort of, you know, didn't take it, didn't take it well at all. And I was with him during that. And we, I, other than that, I haven't heard from him. After the 80s, I didn't see much of him. And we ran into each other on Instagram and messaged each other a few times. And he had, I don't know, it's like he had some poor health issues. Yeah, I, I always knew that there was something wrong Um it, it was, you know, he, he did have a lot of health issues and we, we don't really know what happened. His family, no. mate, it's just, it's just really sad to hear because he wasn't that old. And once you see a tough character like that go, it just, right. He, he, he just, it just went. It yeah. kind of makes you realize your own mortality and how close, oh, sure. Absolutely. you know, it could all be, um, it's not difficult, uh, to lose your life. You know, no. you know, I mean, the the situation that you went through at that contest, you don't remember. You, you know, you were you were at death's door. So death's door. As yeah. As, yeah. Um, as negative as all that may sound, it's it's actually good that you're admitting that sort of stuff, for people to understand this. I think me talking to you today, I would like to think that it's been educational for whoever's going to listen, and um, feel like. Like I said, you know, you've always been one of my favorite people, not just physique-wise, your personality. Uh, when I've met you, you know, you're so gracious and uh, a really good person. And thank you for coming on today and doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure. And, um, I'm sorry about the time. I, I, I thought it was tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm, I'm really sorry because it, it's very difficult. I That's why I said it'll be the same time that we normally do the Most Muscular podcast. Yeah. I'm sure Jason will probably have me back on there because we just get on. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually, I'm actually going to interview all of the guys on there. So you were the first. Right. You were the first. And thank you very much, Phil. It's been really interesting. I've, you know, over the years we've spoken, but I've never been able to get an in-depth into exactly what you were all about. You gave me a couple of surprises today. And... Um, it's, it's just been a really fantastic time talking to you, Phil. Thank you so much. Oh, man. Thank you, John. I appreciate you having me. And I always wanted to say you're always one of my favorite physiques. I got you in a class with you. I had you, Bob Paris. Uh, there were guys like, uh, like I said, Samir, Robbie, Frank Zane. You know, they were my favorite classy physiques, man. Beautiful physiques. Beautiful. You could stand there and just... It's incredible, almost like a statuette or something. And that was my idea of bodybuilding. And that's that's 
that's what I wanted to present. And well, that's what I trained for. You, you did say a while back that you, you know, you're one of my top five favorites and I wasn't sure who the others were. It's so humbling to hear that and, you know, to put me in a position where I'm compared to probably the very best, most aesthetic bodybuilders in the history of the You were one of the best aesthetic bodybuilders. Um, You were one of the best. It's like, you know, you're leaving me speechless. Thank you so much. It's, you know, it's a great compliment. That's probably one of the best compliments I've ever received. Thank you. Oh, no, but it's, it's, yeah, 100%. All right. Well, let's see if we can get this interview out there and get ourselves a little bit more publicity. All right, buddy. That sounds good. All right, Phil. Thank you. Signing off. Thank you, John. And we'll Thanks talk again soon. Okay. That's true. Please.